Happy Father's Day to all the dads. <laughs> Ran across a story this past week that I thought the dads would enjoy an awful lot. Uh, there was a mom and a dad, and they were putting their son to bed one night, and they tucked him in, said prayers, and gave him a kiss, and they headed down the hallway. And uh, about 10 minutes went by, and all of a sudden, the child just starts screaming bloody murder. So they run down to the bedroom, see what in the world's going on. Turns out the little boy had swallowed a penny, and he was certain that he was going to die. Well, the mom tried to console him, said, you're not going to die because you swallowed a penny. And the dad said the exact same thing. But no matter what mom or dad said or did, it didn't seem to matter. He just knew for certain that he was going to die. Well, the dad had an idea that he didn't run by the mom first. He palmed a penny in his hand, reached behind the ear of his son, and pulled out a penny and said, look, son, you don't have anything to worry about. I went all the way down your stomach, pulled the penny out of your ear. You're not going to die. The little boy grabbed the penny, swallowed it, and said, do it again, Dad. Do it again. <laughs> Mom wasn't too happy about that. Dads, how many times in your, uh, in your fatherhood have you tried to do the right thing and it turned out to be the wrong thing? You know, I don't know very many dads that say, you know, I'm killing it as a father. You know, we just never quite feel that way. But I believe that your family is looking to you. And there are things about you that they definitely want to emulate in their own life. So don't grow tired. Don't grow discouraged. Keep plugging away. I read a story this past week about a husband and wife. They went out to eat. And they left the kids with the babysitter. Well, the babysitter wasn't paying much attention. So when the parents got back home, they called for the boy to come out to see him. And he had taken his dad's razor that he used to shave his head bald. And he had a reverse mohawk right in the middle of his hair. Well, the dad was horrified. He said, oh, son, what in the world? I told you not to mess with my razor. You know I use that to shave my head. You should never, ever touch your dad's razor. And he was getting ready to discipline the boy when the little boy said, wait till you see sister. <laughs> she comes around a corner, doesn't have a hair on her head. She's completely bald. The father's beside himself. He said, oh, my goodness, you got to be kidding me right now. Why in the world did you do this? And the little girl innocently said, Daddy, we want to be just like you. And I just think that's the way it is. They'll never admit it, dads, okay? Understand that. Your kids will never admit it, but they're watching you. And there are certain character qualities that you're passing down onto them. You are making a huge difference in their life. And I don't want you to forget that. I mean, just the mere fact that you're here today when you could be a thousand other places, just the mere fact that you've tuned in today when you could be a thousand other places, it shows your kids that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and that you take this responsibility of being the spiritual leader of your family very, very seriously. So I applaud you dads for the hard work that you put in every single day, for the sacrifices that you make. So thankful for you. I want to pray for you right now. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray a special blessing upon the dads today. Because I know that there are times that they feel like they're failures. Now, there's not a single dad here or watching from home that feels like they're just crushing it. So Lord, I pray that you give them strength. That you'd give them perspective. Lord, when the storms come and they've said the wrong thing or they've done the wrong thing and they feel like a failure. May you be their rock. May you be their refuge and may you be their strength. 
Lord, may they get a glimpse of the good work that they're doing. And may they not grow weary at doing good. For you promise us at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Bless them. Bless their marriages. Bless their families. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get into Troublemaker. Last week, we got through the birth of Jesus. Let's continue the timeline. Eight days after Jesus was born, he's presented at the temple, and he is circumcised, and he is officially given the name of Jesus. And then six weeks after his birth, they find themselves, Mary and Joseph, back in the temple for the rites of purification and also to offer an offering of thanksgiving for the gift of a child. Now, normally people would offer as a sacrifice a lamb, but Mary and Joseph are so poor that they can only afford two doves. Now, from time to time, you'll probably hear people say, or maybe you've said it yourself, God could never use somebody like me. I'm not a person of wealth. I'm not a person of influence. Friends, never forget how God used Mary and Joseph. They had no power. They had no position. They were on the bottom rung of the financial ladder, and yet God used them in a significant way. And why is that? Well, it comes down to this. They were available. They were available. These were two people who were surrendered to the will of God. And all they wanted was what God wanted for their life. So God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to say, that's what I want for my life as well. And friends, listen, when you get to that point of surrender, when you finally lay your life down before the Lord and say, whatever, whenever, however, you will find yourself on the greatest adventure that you've ever been on before. And you will see God use you in ways that you never thought that he could use you. Well, a few months goes by. Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem. The Bible tells us that they're actually living in a house there in Bethlehem. And wise men came from the east bearing gifts to give to the newborn king. Now, when I get to that passage of scripture, I always ask myself two questions. One, how did they know the baby had been born? And two, how did they know to look for a star that would mark the way to find the newborn king? Well, to understand the answers to those questions, you got to go back 600 years to a man by the name of Daniel. In the Old Testament, there's a book of the Bible called the book of Daniel. And it's all about Daniel and how he is taken into captivity into Babylon. And he rules under a man by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you read the story of Daniel, you'll know that God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And so he was known as a wise man. He was known as a magi. And over the course of time, he created a school of the magi. Well, how did they know that the Messiah was going to come in a certain time? Well, God had revealed it to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, God says, 483 years after the temple is rebuilt, the Messiah will come. So Daniel passed this on to the other magi. They wrote this down. It went from one generation to another generation. And so that generation that was finally alive during that time knew that the Messiah was born. They had a time frame as to when the Messiah was born. How did they know to look for a star that would guide them to the newborn king? Well, there's a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, 
a scepter will rise out of Israel. So, so they know about the approximate time. They know there's to look for a brand new star in the sky that will guide them. And when the appropriate time came with the star to guide them, guess what they did? They got on their camels and they traveled 900 miles to worship the newborn king. And you know, as their travels went along the way, they stopped off in Jerusalem, had a conversation with King Herod, and they asked the question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod was not excited to hear about this because he was the king of the Jews. And anyone born king of the Jews was a threat to his power and to his position. So Herod said to the wise men, hey, when you find this baby, let me know so I can go and worship him as well. But you and I both know that wasn't his intention. He wants to kill the child. Well, the Magi continue on to Bethlehem. They find Mary and Joseph. They find the baby, and they give their gifts to the baby Jesus as well. And then they're warned in a dream not to go back the way of Herod. And when Herod finds out he's been outwitted by the Magi, he is furious. Calls his prophets together and says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They said, in Bethlehem. He said, when did this star appear in the sky? They said, oh, somewhere about last year or two. So what does he do? Matthew chapter 2, when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Bethlehem wasn't a large town. We talked about that last week. Historians believe anywhere between 20 to 30 male babies were killed on this night. Now I want you to imagine the horror of that. You're just minding your own business. And all of a sudden soldiers kick in your front door. And they grab your baby, and they see that your baby is a boy, and they begin to stab your baby again and again and again until it's dead. And then nothing you can do. And there's weeping and grieving going on, and no one even understands why it's taking place. Now, you might ask the question, why wasn't Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus there? Well, God had warned Joseph in a dream that Herod wanted to kill the baby, and that he needed to leave as fast as possible to go to Egypt. Now think about this. Mary and Joseph are poor. How are they going to afford a trip all the way to Egypt? Well, it was the gifts, wasn't it? The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we think that there were three wise men, don't we? Because there were three gifts. But I've been around guys my whole life. We don't buy individual gifts. We go in. With each other. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're like, hey, anybody get him a gift? You care if I go in on that? Uh, give you 50. There's 50. All right, yeah. So the wise men are traveling 900 miles, or maybe one of the wise men, I don't know, maybe there's 20, 25 of them. I don't know. That's how guys do things. You know, eight of us get together and buy one gift. We're cheap. That's the way it works, okay? And I think they're just traveling, and one of the wise men says, hey, man, what did I give in there? On? Well, what gifts we given to this newborn king? And they said, well, we're giving him gold. Oh, that's a good gift right there. That's good. That's good. Gold. That's for royalty. That's a good gift right there. Gold. What else do we give them? Well, we're giving him frankincense. Oh, that's a good gift too. That's the incense that was burned in the temple. It was an aroma that was pleasing to God. Jesus is our high priest, our intercessor. That's a good gift right there. Make sure my name's on the tag, okay? (laughs) What else are we giving them? Myrrh. What? Giving them myrrh. Do you know what myrrh is? It's embalming fluid. Myrrh. 
Take my name off that one, will you? I appreciate that. <laughs> Give it a baby embalming fluid. That's ridiculous. It was symbolic. This baby was born to die. Born to die for the sins of all mankind. And so Mary and Joseph, they take the three gifts of the wise men and they take out of town. God provides for them. Now, now some of you came in here today with a lot of anxiety, and and I get that. Uh, You look at the news today, and it's depressing, isn't it? Story after story after story of one more thing that you need to be stressed about and anxious about. At least that's what they want you to do. Inflation, all-time high. Your 401k is taking a nosedive. Oh, your 401. Don't open up your 401k. Don't look at that. Just, Just let it ride, friend. Let it ride, okay? Then you drive down the street and you drive by a gas station and the prices are higher than they've ever been before. And then you say, i got to get some food for the family. And so you go in the grocery store and it's 20, 30% higher than it was before. And everything just seems like it's out of sorts. And you think, oh, I just need to calm down. I need to go out to eat. So you go out to eat. You go to McDonald's, okay? And it's like 50% more than it was. We're like, a double McDouble of six bucks? You gotta be kidding me right now. You know, it's, a, it's not that bad, but it's close. It's close, I'm just saying. It's just stressful, and you begin to wonder, you know, is my paycheck gonna make it? It's gonna be tighter than ever before. I, I, maybe this is the only reason God had you tuning in. Maybe this is the only reason God has you here today, is just to hear this. As God was with Mary and Joseph, he'll be with you. My goodness, he sent. He sent wise men 900 miles at just the right time to give them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh so they would be provided for. His eye is upon you. What is your role? You're not to be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, you offer your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Every time you feel your anxiety level go up, you say a prayer to the Lord. And you cast all your cares upon him because he cares about you. Don't you love that verse? By prayer and petition, it's okay to talk to him about it again and again and again. I can promise you this. I've been talking to him about it again and again and again, and he never grows tired of hearing from us. Well, things uh, calm down, I guess, for Mary and Joseph in Egypt. They eventually go back to Nazareth. You know, there's not another story about Jesus' life till he's 12 years old. Did you know that? We don't have anything. We don't have his first steps. We don't have his first words. We, we don't have anything. When he was potty trained, we don't have any of that right here in the Scripture. And all of a sudden, it just kind of does a time-lapse thing, like in a series, you know, that they'd wait years for, and all of a sudden, 12 years have gone by, and that's where it starts up again. And that's what we have here. And the story that we have isn't a very good parenting story for Mary and Joseph. Let me explain. Uh, Mary and Joseph want to go to the Passover celebration, and, and so they get Jesus, and they head on out, and they get in a caravan. Now, you're thinking Dodge. That would be wrong. It's not a Dodge caravan. Joseph didn't drive a minivan. He was cooler than that, okay? A caravan was just a large group of people because nobody would travel alone because of thieves and because of robbers. Well, they get to the Passover. They enjoy the celebration. Now, they all get back in the caravan, and they head back home. Well, guess what? Mary thinks Joseph. Joseph's got Jesus, and Joseph thinks Mary has got Jesus, and neither one of them do. And after three days, they realize that Jesus isn't in the caravan. Do you understand the implications of what just happened? They just lost God. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's messed up right there. 
So they rush back to Jerusalem to see what in the world's going on, and they find Jesus in the temple. And this is what the Bible says. Jesus was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Already at the age of 12, he knows why he's come. He knows who he is, he knows his purpose, and he knows his mission. Came across the story this past week. There were two boys, they were eight years old and 10 years old, a couple of brothers. And uh, they wreaked havoc all throughout, uh, everywhere they went. If, if there was an issue in the town, there was an issue in the school, an issue at the church. Everybody knew the prank was by, behind the prank was these two boys. Well, the parents were nervous because their pranks got more and more intense. And they were fearful that they would continue to do this as they got older. They would get in trouble with the law. And they needed to have someone who could talk some sense into them since the kids weren't listening to them. They thought, who is the person who's the most intimidating person that we know? And they thought about their local preacher. He was a Bible-thumping, hell-brim-fire, brimstone-speaking, pounding-pulpit kind of guy. If anybody could get through to those kids, it was this man. So they set up the appointments, and the eight-year-old would go first. He walked the four blocks to get to the church. He sat there waiting for the preacher to let him in. He brought the kid in. The kid sat on one side of the desk, preacher on the other side. Preacher just stared at him for the first couple of minutes to intimidate him. He said, son, I've got a question for you. Where is God? Little eight-year-old boy's eyes just lit up like, oh, my gosh, he didn't say anything. He was just shaking like a leaf on a tree. He said, son, when I talk to you, you answer me. Where is God? Little boy still didn't know what in the world to say. Preacher said, I'm going to ask you only one more time, and I expect an answer. Where is God? And the eight-year-old ran out. As fast as he could. Ran down the street four blocks, got to the house, went to the second floor, got to his bedroom, got into the closet, slammed the closet door, shaking like a leaf on a tree. His brother is 10 years old. Here's the ruckus, and he runs into the room, opens up the closet door, sees his little brother, scared for his life. He said, what happened? What happened in the meeting? I got to go next. What happened? What happened? He said, it's bad, man. It's bad. He said, what happened? He said, God's missing, and everybody thinks we did it. <laughs> I waited all week for that one, man. That was worth it. That was worth it. So here we got the birth of Jesus and a few things surrounding the birth of Jesus. Then we got nothing till he's 12. And then at 12 years old, we got this story that he already knows who he is. And then guess what? We got nothing again. There's nothing about his teenage years. There's nothing about his 20-something years. The next story that we have is when he is 30 years old and he begins his public ministry. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is why did he wait till he was 30 years old to start his public ministry? I think there were two reasons. One is he's the breadwinner of his family. You see, Joseph doesn't show back on the scene ever again after Jesus is 12. And most historians believe that Joseph has passed away and that Jesus has taken the mantle on to provide for his family, to provide for Mary, and to provide for his half-brothers and his half-sisters. 
Now, some of you come from a Catholic tradition, and you were taught perpetual virginity, that Mary was always a virgin, that they never had any children. The Catholics have a a Bible called the Catholic Bible, and in this particular passage of Scripture I'm going to share with you, they have changed the wording to be Jesus' cousins, and they've taken away that it was Jesus' brothers and sisters. I don't know why They've done that because in fairness to the original Greek, the earliest manuscripts we've got, it's very clear that it's brothers and sisters. Let's look at it. It says that Jesus is in his hometown. People don't believe that he's the Messiah. And this is what they said. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? (laughs) Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? That would be rough, don't you think? I mean, I wonder how many times Mary and Joseph said, why can't you be like Jesus? (laughs) Oh, the bar's kind of high, Mom. I think they had a family meeting, don't you? I think they sat everybody down. I think they gave them a bracelet, WWJD. That's what I think they did. (laughs) Just ask yourself, what would Jesus? He's right there, okay? On a side note, I wonder when Jesus was a kid, if he ever left the front door open. And Joseph shouted out, shut that door, were you born in a barn? And Jesus said, as a matter of fact, I was. <laughs> Just a crazy idea, I don't know, it's a random thought, that's all it is. So Jesus has to wait till he's 30, till his obligation is done, until one of his brothers is old enough to take care of the family. That's one of the reasons he waits till 30, but I don't think it's the main reason. I think the main reason, according to Rabonic tradition, is that you weren't considered spiritually mature, nor could you be a rabbi until the age of 30. Look at what the Bible says here in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work in the tent of meeting. I find it interesting that the number 30, the age 30, comes up quite a bit in Scripture. Joseph, when he was second in charge of all of Egypt, was 30 when he took that post. When David became king of Israel, he was 30 years old. When John the Baptist started his public ministry, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. He started when he turned 30. And here we have Jesus when he turns 30, starting his public ministry as well, proclaiming that he is a rabbi. He is a, he is a teacher. And so now he can gather his disciples and he can begin the purpose that God has set for him to, to fulfill. Now, what's the first thing that Jesus does once he announces his public ministry is he goes out to the desert. He goes out to the wilderness where John the Baptist is at, and he goes there to be baptized. Now, it's a pretty dramatic scene. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming in the distance, and he shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist knows that Jesus is the Messiah, right? And so there's a conversation that takes place, and Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. Now, John's baptism was all about repentance. You would shout out what your sins were, and then you would go under the water, dying to your old way of life, and now you were living your brand new life with God. That's what John's baptism was all about. So there's an argument that takes place between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist refuses to baptize Jesus. Why? Jesus never sinned. He's got nothing to repent of. So John says, I don't see any reason for you to be baptized. And Jesus says, this is what I must do. So here's the question we got to ask ourselves, why? Why does Jesus insist 
on being baptized. Well, I was listening to a message by Gene Apple. He gave three good reasons. Let me, let me share them with you. One is this. Baptism was a turning point in Jesus' life. When Jesus was baptized, it was, he was saying, I'm changing my purpose. I'm putting away the carpentry tools, and I'm fixing my eyes on the cross. I've come here to die for the sins of all mankind, be buried, and rise again from the dead. Now, isn't that what baptism is for you and me? It's a turning point. We say, you know what? I used to love a lot of stuff of this world, but I love Jesus so much more now. Your, your whole love of your life has changed. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Your lifestyle changes. The things that you once thought were okay to do, you now have the Holy Spirit living inside you, convicting you of that, saying, hey, you don't need to be doing that anymore. That's not going to be any benefit, benefiting to the kingdom of God. Stay away from that. And you're like, yeah, that's right. I'm going to do my life for Jesus from this day forward. It's a turning point, isn't it? You have a different loyalty now. You used to be loyal to yourself and what you wanted. Now you're loyal to the kingdom of God and whatever God says goes, right? So baptism is this turning point saying, I'm going to follow Jesus from this day forward. Let me give you another reason. Jesus' baptism was a demonstration of his humility. Again, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized, does he? He's never sinned. So why does he do it? Because it had to be pretty humbling for him to go out in that water and everybody look at him and go, whoa, why, that Jesus is getting baptized. It's a humbling experience. Why did he do it? He, went, he did it as an example for you and me. It's as if Jesus looks at us and says, listen, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I didn't do myself. I mean, speed the leader, speed the team, right? I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I haven't done myself. And so Jesus, he's, he's, he's baptized, and it's a humbling moment. And, and baptism is a humbling moment, isn't it? Can I tell you a little secret? Prideful people don't get baptized. Their arrogance stops them. Because when you get baptized, it's a public admission that you can't save yourself. That you're not good enough, and you're not smart enough, that you're not religious enough, that there's no way you can pay your sin debt, and it's humbling to allow somebody else to pay your sin debt. And so you, you stand there in the tank and you say, I am a great sinner, <laughs> but oh, what a Savior Jesus is. And the, they put you under the water, and you, you come back up out of the water, and it's humbling because you don't look good. Never been a time I dunk somebody out and go, whoa, look, that's an improvement, right? That's never happened. <laughs> like, you need to go change. That's what I'm thinking. You know, go do your hair. You got wipe your nose, man. Snot coming out of that thing. If we ever have a weekend where we're baptizing a couple hundred people, be first. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Be first. Because <laughs> the hairspray and the and the junk you funkify, the lotion, the snot, it lingers, man. That's all I'm saying. I go home, oh, you got to shower, you know. It's gross. The hair's all funkified, snout's coming out your nose. Then you trip up the steps. It's not a good time. It's humbling, I'm telling you that right now. But it's also that moment when you say, I'm doing this for you. In light of all you've done for me, I mean, my goodness, who loves you like Jesus loves you? I don't know anybody. And who's forgiven you, and he does it so fast? Just ask. 
to throw your sin as far as the east. Who else treats you like that? Who else gives you hope? Who else gives you purpose? Who else has never left you or forsaken you or turned their back upon? Only Jesus. So you think about all the good things that he's done for you, all the ways he's blessed you. You say, this is the least I could do. In light of all you've done for me, this is the least I could do for you. It's a humbling, humbling thing. It's also a picture of his ultimate mission. Jesus came to die for our sins. It's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we're saved, that we're forgiven and have access to God. Look at Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, you've seen this a thousand times, right? You've seen us do this. This is the water in the baptistry, and this is the person. That makes the symbol of the cross, doesn't it? The cross is the center of baptism. So Jesus comes, he dies, he's buried, he rises again from the dead. We come, and we're saying, I'm dying to my old way of life. I'm being raised to my brand new life in Jesus. And the cross is the centerpiece of it all. Now, who should be baptized? You're right, it seems like a pretty easy answer. Anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who's made Jesus the leader and forgiver of their life. Anyone who's made Jesus the Lord and Savior of their life. They should be baptized. Anyone who's made that decision for themselves. You say, well, who shouldn't be baptized? People who haven't done that. That includes babies. See, some of you come from a Catholic tradition or you come from another tradition where they had confirmation and they sprinkled you after you went through a book study. I hate to tell you this, but that baptism isn't found in the Bible. Every baptism in the Bible is done by immersion, and it's the choice of the person being baptized to be baptized. And it's always after that person has professed their faith and love in Jesus Christ. Now, if you were baptized as a baby or you were sprinkled at some point in time, there's nothing evil about that. There's nothing wrong with that. That was your parents' way of dedicating you to the Lord. That's just not found in the Bible. Biblical baptism is a decision that you make. It's your public profession of your faith that you love him and that you will follow him no matter what he asks of you. It's not something that someone else decides for you. My goodness, when you're a baby, you don't even know you're alive. You know that, right? I mean, you don't have a memory until you're like three, four, five years old, and that's only because of videotapes and DVD players and stuff like that that you ever knew. I mean, most time when somebody's getting baptized, that kid's peeing. You know what I'm saying? That's what he's doing. And over here, nobody pees. The, please tell me nobody does that. <laughs> Siri. I'm never getting baptized here, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> you make your choice. And it doesn't negate what was done. They were dedicating you to the Lord. And honestly, your biblical baptism is a fulfillment of what they prayed for so many years ago. That's who should be baptized. Let me give you one more bonus reason you should be baptized. It was, his, it was Jesus' public expression of his commitment to God. I don't want you to ever forget this. Jesus walked 80 miles to get baptized. He walked 80 miles to get baptized. Some of you right now are sitting less than 80 feet away. And you still haven't done that. What, what does that say about your commitment? 
You say you're going to follow him. You say whatever he wants is what you want. You say you love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. But when it comes to doing this one act of humility, of surrender, you say, I pass. What does that say about your commitment? Time to time, I'll be out and about, and somebody will stop me, and I'll talk to them about how they've been coming to the church. And they say, oh, I gave my life to Jesus. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. I said, were you baptized? No. Why weren't you baptized? Well, he said, well, Todd, let me ask you a question. I've had this happen to me more times than I can count. Do I have to be baptized to go to heaven? The answer is no. You don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. You remember the thief on the cross? Thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, well, today I promise you, you'll be in paradise. Jesus didn't say, hey, stop the crucifixion. Hey, hey, get the guy down. Put him in some water. If he's not in water, he's not going to heaven. Come on. That didn't happen, did it? Look at what the Bible says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's by grace you've been saved through faith plus infant baptism. Doesn't say that, does it? It's by grace you've been saved through faith plus going to church. No, it doesn't say that either. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, plus getting baptized over in that tank. No, it doesn't say that either. Bible says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That's it. Not from yourselves even. It's a gift of God. Not by works so no one can boast. So no, you don't have to get baptized to be a follower of Christ. You don't have to get baptized to go to heaven. But why are you asking that question in the first place? I have a ring on my finger. I got married almost 30 years ago, and I've had some form of this ring on my finger for all those 30 years. It is the symbol of my commitment to my wife, and I wear it proudly everywhere I go every single day. But let's say I didn't. Let's say on the third day of the honeymoon, because I wouldn't want to spring it on day one, but let's say third day of the honeymoon, I say, hey, you know, Christy, we had a wonderful celebration, and we're married now, and we're committed to each other, and we gave these rings as symbols of our commitment, but you know, I'm not really a ring wearer, you know, I kind of get caught in my finger and stuff, and I was just curious, would it be okay if I just didn't wear it? I mean, you know I'm committed to you, but I just don't want everybody else to know. This thing's on my finger, I'll tell you that right now, because you already know what her answer would be, right? Kind of shows the level of commitment. So let me see if I got this right. Jesus, I really appreciate the fact that you died for me, that you were beaten so badly you were beyond recognition. I really appreciate the fact that you took all my sin debt and paid it in full by your precious blood. I appreciate the fact that you rose again from the dead, and I appreciate the fact that you're preparing a place for me in heaven. That you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I can count on you for anything. And you're always there. Appreciate all of that. But when it comes to the first thing you ask me to do. To proclaim my love for you. I think I'll take a pass. I think that goes over in heaven. About as good as it would go over with my wife. Shows a lack of commitment. Did you know that uh, there are places today where people are getting baptized? I mean, 
probably hundreds of thousands of people, to be honest with you, all around the world getting baptized. But they're not getting baptized in a safe place like this. My goodness, when we get baptized here, people are cheering. We're singing songs of praise to the Lord. People are cheering. No one's ever been booed during their baptism. Isn't that strange? No one's ever gone, boo! Boo! Why is he getting baptized? That's ridiculous right there. Nobody's waving angry signs. You're still going to hell. You're still going to hell. That doesn't happen, does it? No, well, yay. We're so excited for you. Such a safe place to proclaim your love for Jesus. All these people getting baptized around the world, most of them are getting baptized in places where it's not safe for them. See, they're getting baptized out in public places where there's rivers and streams and lakes, and people are coming out who aren't believers in Christ, and they're saying, you get baptized, you're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. You get baptized, I won't do business with you anymore. My goodness, there are places that if you get baptized and someone finds out about it, you go to jail. In North Korea, they find out you're a Christian, they throw you in a concentration camp. You didn't know those existed, did they? Look it up. Google it. There's satellite images. There's hundreds of them with thousands and thousands of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ slowly starving to death, working in these concentration camps. And what's their crime? Proclaiming that Jesus is the leader and forgiver of their lives. you got to ask yourself a question. Why would they endure all that? Why would they risk all of that? Well, because to them, Jesus is the treasure. And Jesus means more to them than anything else. And I guess that's the question i got to ask you. Is he the treasure? And does he mean more to you than anything else? I'm going to ask you to do something I've never asked you to do before. You're going to be kind of shocked when you find out that I'm going to ask you to do it. You ready? I want everyone to pull out your phone. Go ahead. It's okay. I won't, get, I won't yell at you. Go ahead. Everybody play along. Play along with the pastor, would you please? You're like, oh, Mr. Phone, I've missed you. It's been 32 minutes and you're back where you need to be in my hand. You're so addicted, aren't you? Oh, it's nice. Now, if you've been around Sagebrush for a while, and if you haven't, the first thing you need to do is download the Sagebrush app. So I'm sure you have that on your phone. So open up the Sagebrush app. We'll see which uh, mobile carrier is the best right now, right? Let's see if T-Mobile opens it faster than, let's say, AT&T or Verizon, all right? Got it opened up? Open up the Sagebrush app. You don't have it on your way home, make sure you download it. Scroll down just a little bit on that front page and find a banner that says Decisions and click on that. Just for a second. Just click on that. Look, there's a place for your name and your address and your phone number. And there's a place to sign up to be baptized. <laughs> Jesus walked 80 miles. You're 80 seconds away from being obedient. So will you hit submit as you submit to him? Is he the treasure? You see, the battle for you and me isn't between Satan's will and God's will, is it? No, the real battle is between God's will and your will. Which one wins today? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray we'd hit submit and we would do what you've called us to do and we would be what you've called us to be and that we would be excited. Lord, in all my years of baptizing people, I've never heard anybody say, I'm so glad I waited. <laughs>
so glad I put this off. I've never heard that. Lord, you know what I've heard. I wish I would have done this sooner. So for every person who's ever felt a twinge of guilt and conviction because they know they need to do it and yet they keep putting it off, I pray today would be the day that they would follow in your footsteps. They would humble themselves and they would proclaim their love for you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.